Hello and welcome to our new episode of Vagabond Actors. I am Andrea Helene. I'm talking to you from Mallorca, Spain, and I am joined by my wonderful colleagues, partners in crime, really, Brian Casp from Prague. I'm not in Prague today. I'm in Belgrade. Wonderful. Also yeah. talking with us, as always, our best from London, Gary Condis. Hi, Gary. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Brian. How are we all doing? hanging in there man he's in he's in a hotel room i wish i were locked in a hotel room so nobody could reach me for a few days <laughs> there are certain benefits to it yeah yeah well if you're new to vagabond actors podcast we talk about all things acting the craft mindset business and more and today we'll be talking about truthfulness in acting which is going to be a big meaty subject i think Let's find out first, though, as we always do, what we've been up to this week. Well, you know, I'm still here. I'm about to shoot. We're going to go shoot tomorrow on the film. So that's very exciting. But it's been a real interesting process. You know, like we named the podcast Vagabond Actors because that's part of who I would like our target audience to be is actors who were kind of on the road and, you know, living out of hotel rooms. And now that I've been living that for the past week and a half and actually for the next two months, it's going to be quite on the road for me. It's a very interesting difference between the fantasy of what that is and the reality. Mm. And I think that the reality is much more unglamorous in a way than the fantasy. And especially with COVID, there is not very much socializing. I don't know. Just It just feels like a lot of walks and a lot of being in the hotel room. So that's kind of what I've been doing for my career, which isn't the normal thing of like, oh, I've been working on this script and I've been doing this audition and that thing. But it is a real interesting feeling of like, this is a lot of what it is when you're away, is just waiting for the work to happen. Have you done all your wardrobe and are there any rehearsals or, or anything that's to do with the production that you've um, had to do in, in, in the meantime? We did that. We did that last week. So I did a fitting last week and then we had a rehearsal, which was really good. It was really great to reconnect with the director that I had met on a different project in Prague. And it was great to see him and his assistant that, who I knew and to meet the other actors in the scene and to kind of get into it. But then it was like, okay. And they were jetting off to the next rehearsal and I was done for the day. You know, it was like a morning. And so I went back to the hotel and was like, okay, I guess I'm back in the hotel. So the work I think is going to be really fun and really good. And everyone is really super nice. So then if you close your eyes, you were able to describe everything in that hotel room without even seeing it. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This hotel room has been lived in. Gary, what have you been up to? Yeah, I came across an interesting story from a client that I'm working with at the moment. Now, they are working on a very big TV series, and it was just their experience. And I think it might be good to just retell it so that actors kind of understand the reality of things for those who maybe haven't experienced it or maybe are wondering, you know, when they do, what to do and how to deal with it. And this client of mine is he's not a massive part, but he's throughout the series, and there's a lot of big actors on it, and it's a huge director and when he went into rehearsals the personnel the director and everyone was really friendly and really accommodating and really open to ideas but then when they got on set it was completely the opposite 
And that's kind of a reality that he was faced with. And whereas all of these ideas were kind of met with openness in rehearsal, in a sort of relaxed meet, they weren't entertained on set. (laughs) And the attitude and the relationship changed. That's probably because the director is now on a huge behemoth of a production and partly because there's no time to deal with perhaps someone who is fifth on the call sheet as opposed to first on the call sheet. Mm -hmm. So that kind of knocked him back a bit because there were certain ideas that were aired that were indulged but then not taken forward on the day of shooting. So that threw him. And then there's also my client is working with the lead. And this is a real sort of leveler and a reality reminder. It's a short scene, maybe a couple of pages or a page and a half. And, you know, he got a kind of hour and basic coverage and the star got untold coverage, lots of different angles and lots of time. And my client was shot first and that was kind of it, you know. Obviously, it wasn't it. He was still there and doing his job. But it just shows you the reality of the situation when you're dealing on huge productions. But it's a real leveler. And a lot of stuff that he'd tried out in rehearsals was kind of cut away. And again, just when he was warming up into it, they had to move on and and turn the camera around. So you got to be totally prepared. You got to not expect anything more than what you've got to do. And if things are pally and well with other personnel and director, when it comes to the day that the match is happening, when you're shooting, to expect that people are going to get into a funny zone or at least into a a very serious zone and not have any expectations. Does your client notice a difference with scenes that are with the lead, the star, and scenes where the star is not there? Well, he's only done the one scene and that's it. This is the one. Because what might be happening is that the star is maybe not explicitly, but very demanding, and that the director knows that they have to service the star and that there might be other times where you're shooting without the star where it is more relaxed. Yeah, he's got nothing to compare it to as yet. And and as far as the star's concerned, the star is fine to work with. Right, and it's not that the star would be purposefully doing that. It's just that the center of gravity shifts It's so noticeable that it shifts towards the star. Certainly. That when the star isn't there, it kind of is more even. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think the emphasis here, it's just more about his relationship to the director has changed. Suggestions have been cut away and it's almost like he doesn't exist. Now, you should not bank on on anything. You turn up, you do your job, and you go away, like we've said, and you're not here to make friends or anything like that. However, it's just something that's thrown him. And we talked about this. We remember in the podcast, you know, how you deal with being on set and how open can you be with the director and all the rest of it. And certain things that he's prepared because of those early interactions are, have now been, without any discussion, are just like, no, I just want you to do this, this, and this. And Of course, you've got to do that, but it's just a reality check and he just has to get on with it. I'd almost say he's lucky that he got shot the first thing in the morning and not at the end of the day after standing around, right? Right, which is a reality. It's an absolute reality and you have to bite that bullet, right? But, you know, there's other things that are happening where the director is kind of going, I think you should do this, and then leaving it and walking off and then letting it mull over and then kind of go, okay, well... Should I? I don't know. I'm, I don't know. It's not being left. And then he comes back and goes, I think it's a good idea, you know, <laughs> which yeah. you take. But it's like that wouldn't be such an issue if that was 
the relationship all the way from the beginning, yeah. but it is a complete opposite to how it was. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's very interesting and, again, tales from the front line. It's a reality. Well, just everyone who's listening should, especially on a TV set, you should only expect technical direction. Do this faster. Change the eye line to this. When you come in, you need to stop slower or walk in slower or something like that. You shouldn't expect them to have very much process-oriented direction. It's very, very different, the process of being on a set, especially in television, where it goes so fast, from being in a rehearsal room in a theater where you're kind of finding. Yeah, yeah. They don't really want to find it. They want it to already have Mm -hmm. been found and do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing he learned also was in rehearsals and there was even sort of meets like casual coffees and stuff like that and talking about the scene and ideas were being put up. But then on set, he was doing the same thing. And so when he said, well, I'm not sure that's a great idea, you know, in the manner that he's been accustomed to previous to the shoot, it's met with bewilderment. It's like, well, I'd like you to do it. It just shows you that you yeah. just got to take it all. You got to find a way of working it in. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't expect or assume anything. And if you're working with a director of that caliber on a, such a big show, then you just get on with it. Because like you've said yeah. before in the past, you're six on the call sheet. There's no currency there other than doing your job. It really does change. I mean, I know we're, we're kind of like, talking this out, but like, it really does change when you are the star of the scene. So not necessarily the star of the show, but if like you are the big character or the big driver in the scene, then you will get that attention. Mm-hmm. And you most likely will have the chance to say, um, you know, this is kind of how I want to do this thing. Yeah. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see what your client comes back with as he shoots more scenes yeah. and with different people. And as uh, is this scene, was this sh- shoot towards the beginning of their production, the production cycle? Yeah, or? it's a, it's yeah, it's a, it's early on. I think it was like second right. day actually no. of shooting. Oh, so, the, so it could very well be that the director mm-hmm. is dealing with all kinds of other stresses yeah. that need to be ironed out. They could be behind. There could be production issues that the actors just don't see, or things that are coming up in the schedule that the director is thinking about or stressed about that you just don't see. And so I think, you know, even though I can totally see how it would throw you if you have one relationship in a rehearsal where it's relaxed and everything's cool and we're collaborators on this show and let's make it the best show possible and all ideas are welcome and all that. And then it changes so drastically when you get on set. I think that you're absolutely right, Gary, like just basically come as prepared as you can, come as open as you can to the director saying, no, try something else or do the, do it a different way and just put your head down and do it and get through it. Yeah. And expect nothing. And don't take it personally Yeah, because it probably yeah. has nothing to do with that actor's performance. These things happen at so many different levels. You know, I mean, I think Brian makes a great point that it's very, very possible at the start of the shoot, the director has a huge amount that's swirling around him that he's dealing with. But these things can happen on commercial shoots. When you're starting out, you can be a more advanced performer and have a lot of experience and still encounter something like this. I mean, it's just, it's all such a live organism and there's such an degree of interplay and so many factors can influence how we deal with each other on set. So it's a great lesson um, for all of our actors. I think that even though you may be number five on the call sheet, it doesn't mean suddenly you are inured to these kinds of experiences. And it's great that we have sort of stories from the front line that we can share from our clients and ourselves. 
Yeah, and it just emphasises the importance of really being uber prepared so mm-hmm. that anything that does throw you off doesn't really throw you that much off kilter because you can yeah. focus on the work. It's another opportunity for me to bring out my take fulfillment from every step mantra too. Yes. I mean, it's a perfect example of it where you think it's going to be even, but actually you're there for most of the day just providing the off-screen lines for the star who's getting all this coverage. But if you can take fulfillment from that without thinking, oh, this is going to cut together and I'm hardly going to be in this scene, then you've got a great day behind you. But that's hard. I mean, it's hard to do it. I'm, I'm kind of being flippant about it. But, you know, if you can do it, it's a great way to spend the day, you know, on a set, being paid, watching a great actor work, being a part of it, even if you're not as collaborative as you thought you should be. Yeah. Anyway, Andrea, what about you? What have you been up to these days? Oh, gosh, my life is boring compared to being in a hotel room in Serbia and, <laughs> um, and hearing about, you know, big television productions. I have been doing some more coaching and script reading and then taking some personal time to just chill out a little bit and restore some energy because it's been a very intense couple of months here. So the actresses I was working with are getting really, really great feedback on their auditions Mm. and their pieces that they've been filming. So that's really quite lovely. That's great. Yeah. Just um, gearing up to do some more, just some more of that. So all is well here on the island. So Andrea, you said that the actors that you're working with are getting really great feedback. Yes. So what is the difference between like what they were doing before and what they're doing now that they're getting great feedback? And is it from the casting or is it from their agents? Is it from... Casting agents and directors when they're shooting. So I think it's about specificity and depth. I think that's really what we're working on. That they come to it with really good, solid ideas. Mm -hmm. And we really break down the moments and, you know, the energy of a scene, what things mean, what things could mean, what a subtext may be in some cases. I mean, I think we're just trying to get a little bit underneath it and make it as personal as possible. And also to just remind them that there aren't accidents in the scripts. You know, there's a reason why suddenly the character is calling the other character by the first name, mm-hmm. whereas the rest of the scene, it's been by the last name. There's intention through all of it. And so I think we're trying to work on slowing them down a little bit to look at it and to look underneath it. And I think they enjoy the process. And I think it's getting really great results because they're going and they're feeling strong and fluid and eager to dig into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it. Depth and specificity seem to be the things that we're really going after. Right. I mean, it's a lot of what we talked about in our digging into text episode, right? How to dig into a text, bring out the specificity of it, maybe in a way that are unique to these particular actors. That's right. So that they bring something personal to them, to the script. That's right. And it's certainly in the case of auditions, you know, dealing with Zoom auditions and the dynamics of that versus self-tapes and really how to stage some pieces on self-tapes eye lines, you know, and dynamics mm-hmm. of the interplay between the characters and stuff. So, I mean, it's always, it's a lot of fun. And as you've said many times, Brian, I think there's a great deal of value in working it out with somebody, you know, just mm-hmm. putting it on its feet and having that conversation and playing around with it. There's really great value in getting out of your own headspace and into the doing, getting it more into your body. And so we've had a lot of fun. That's great. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to do more of that. Me too. It sounds like you're having a great time doing it yes. and the people are getting a lot of benefit out of it. So if you guys out there listening, if Gary's too busy 
with his coaching, <laughs> go to Andrea and have her help you with your audition. That, you that's go. definitely a little advertisement. For, <laughs> I'll take for Gary's food scraps. <laughs> cool. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters your audition, and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So, big topic today, and we're going to do our best to break it down a little bit and bring some understanding to this idea of truthfulness in acting. So what does it mean? How has it been explored in acting training? What does it mean to us? Why is it important? How do we help actors to find truth in acting? And why is it, in our perspective, critical in great performances? So, Gary. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Brian's avoided that one. Truth. Like gone. I laugh at truth. There was sweat pearls forming on his forehead, and then when you came to me, there was an audible relief. I'm sure I'll come up with something to say. Go ahead, Gary. Gary, let's talk about truthfulness in acting. Should we should we go back to Stanislavski and Stella and Strasberg? Should we talk about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it is tricky. It's a tricky subject. I think it's quite an open thing. And truth, regardless of whether it, in acting or not, can be a subjective thing. It's a challenging subject to talk about. And I hope all of us can try and articulate our thoughts on it in, in a way that, you know, sheds some light on it. The first thing that came to me is go, well, let me ask some questions about this. What's the criteria of truth? that allows us to identify and distinguish it from fakery or from something being fake or not truthful? And is truth always absolute or can it be relative to one's perspective? I mean, that's sort of on a meta level regardless of acting, but in relation to acting, that can also be asked. And for me to start off, when you're telling the truth in acting, there's an absence of those little signs of pretense. And in untruthful acting, there are too many signs of artifice and it doesn't ring true or at least feel honest to you. And when actors are indicating, it means to me that they are showing what they haven't got because they're empty. And that often comes from a cerebral place and it's performative because they're not experiencing it. And that's maybe one sign of an actor not being truthful. Another one is pushing, showing what you do have and promoting what you do have 
because you don't trust it. You may well be experiencing something real, but you're putting on a show of it, the real thing that you're experiencing. So why does anyone pretend, and particularly actors, is people pretend when they've not learned to be authentic or honest or true with their feelings. It's what the early Meisner work does so terrifically. It gets you to open up to drop the mask that maybe you've acquired in life for all sorts of reasons, but mainly to survive in society. And what that work does is gets you to open up and be vulnerable. So if we're already not 100% truthful in life, and then as an actor, you haven't worked on that, and then you work to put on a character or a character mask on top of that, you're kind of dealing with bullshit squared already. (laughs) You know, it's a kind of pileup of layers of masks. Mm-hmm. out of artifice to pretend there's a lack of trust there there's a lack of connection to yourself and the ability to own up to being honest and being truthful because perhaps you haven't been given the chance to and maybe you don't even know what that is mm. i mean i'm reminded of Uta hagen and her definition of representational acting indicating it which i refer to as look at me acting and presentational acting, where you're living it for real, in the moment, moment by moment, and the feelings you're going through are authentic. They're not promoted or they're not indicated. And that is more, as opposed to look at me acting, this is more here I am acting. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, quoting Sanford Meisner, who I think really does get at something here with his early work, the reality of doing, which you all know. If acting is doing, to act is to do, to be in the process of doing is acting, to be acting then is to be taking action. You're on your way to being truthful if you are allowing yourself to just do rather than act, because this doesn't require any artifice and it isn't a trick. What it does require is commitment. That will and that commitment to doing something without any artifice and just letting the doing of it carry you has a truth to it in and of itself. Let me just poke around a little bit in that idea of the reality of doing from a Meisner perspective, because I think, you know, we've all watched students on stage in the Meisner work. And we can spot the untruthfulness. And when we discuss it with the actors, what we're seeing and challenging what they've been doing, sometimes the response is, but I'm really doing this thing. (laughs) But what we tend to notice is the quality of the doing. And if you're really connected to what you're doing, if it's really an authentic experience, or if it's an experience that you've sort of drummed up because you think it's the right thing to do, or it's something with an intention that's different from the moment of the script, maybe. Uh, Maybe the intention in the script is to really complain and to try and get somebody to change their mind. And you've come up with an entirely different intention, which is when you look at it, it's sort of ego-driven or something else. So I think sometimes the underlying intentions are what leads an actor astray into untruthfulness, as well as, you know, just a sense of being ill at ease almost. You know what I mean? No matter what the scale is of a piece, no matter what the genre is, whether it's a large or a small energy kind in this character, I think sometimes actors get caught up in ideas and then they're playing at ideas. And so are they really doing something? Yes, they're doing something, but they're not doing the things that are called for in the scene and they're not doing things in an authentic way. And I think that's when our little mouse ears go up and we make our little notes to ourselves, but oh God, I wish (laughs) you would just get real 
just get real, just put it all aside <laughs> and let once. it be, right? As you say, Gary, like in the lovely British elegant way that you put it, you know, just be here now, just just be present. And that's so much more interesting than the artifice that sometimes actors bring to their work. So there is the reality of doing, but doing the right thing with the right intention and with ease and relaxation, maybe, is the distance between what we perceive as being fakery and truthfulness. To me, I think that that distinction, and this is something that really does come out in the early Meisner work. That distinction is very much down to getting to the core of what those actors' truthful opinions are, what their truthful instinctual responses are, Mm -hmm. and really letting those be present. And I think that that's one of the things that with a lot of student actors... And, you know, to a certain extent with some more experienced actors as well, it's really difficult because we live our lives not really being very truthful about how we really feel about things. Certainly not letting ourselves express that truth. And maybe to the extent that we've even hidden it from ourselves, how we really feel, Mm -hmm. how we really feel, not how we're supposed to feel, not how we should feel, not what we think would be the easiest thing for everyone else to know what we feel, but what we, how we really feel about what's happening around us. And that's something that the repetition work really gets at, especially, you know, in the classes that I'm teaching, that's something that I'm very interested in and I I really focus on. Mm -hmm. And when you connect with those responses Mm -hmm. as a core, as a base, right? So not really taking yeah. into account the needs of the imaginary circumstance or the scene that you might be performing, right? That's that's another layer on top of it. But when you get to that, then you really start to see that what is happening within the interaction between those two actors or those two people, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that is a truthful interaction. Because what you're doing is you are removing all of the thought from it. The only thing that thinking and analyzing and being intellectual about the interaction that's happening between two people is doing is getting in the way of that truth. That's all it really does. And there's a good reason for it getting in the way, which is that it keeps us safe and it keeps us from making a fool of ourselves out in real society, but it isn't very truthful. Yeah, the spontaneity is a real key. I think you are right. It's almost in the definition, isn't it, of having a spontaneous reaction to something, which is what the early Meisner work in particular is trying to allow to happen. That means that there's a, like a, sort of like in music, you know, when you have a slur from one note to the next, Mm -hmm. like you have a slur from the action into the reaction. And there's just not a lot of room for dissection and thought and interference, you know, and there's something so freeing when actors realize that they can experience that and how beautiful it looks to their eye when they see real honest moment to moment listening and connection and spontaneous responsiveness and then discovering what is the truthful behavior of a a circumstance of a given circumstance. I think it's fantastic when you see actors in a studio space really watching each other and how moved and driven they are. They're not really studying. I find it's not, it's not so much a study of how somebody is going about the scene up until 
you know, maybe in the later work it is, but they're really just watching human beings interacting in, in such a lovely natural circumstance. And they're developing their own sense of what true human behavior really looks like, as opposed to what it is that they're seeing out on the street. And that's something that I think all three of us have experience with, especially with students at the beginning of whatever work you're doing is you see them not yeah. really responding at all. And you go, what's going on? And they say, well, you said I was supposed to be truthful. Mm -hmm. I would truthfully just shut down or how I truthfully do something is this is how I truthfully do it. And you go, that's not the real core truth, I don't think. I mean, Gary, do you, do you find that as well? Yeah, actually what you're talking about, and this is where it gets tricky, is there is a difference between real and truthful. And I think that's what you're kind of explaining is when someone says, well, this is real to me, i.e., this is how I behave. It's I'm being real. For instance, not raising my voice and just dismissing things. And I often in class, not so much now because I'm doing different things, my focus is elsewhere. But when I was working on that kind of repetition and all of that stuff is, you know, I was going, yeah, I believe you, you are being real. I don't believe you're being fake, but you're not being truthful. Meaning if you dig deeper to what this, as Andrea said, the pinch is justifying, you're not actually embodying that in a way that is necessary for expression in acting. You can call people who constrain themselves real because they're being real. They're not faking constraining themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, it's not very artistic, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very dramatic. They don't write exactly. scenes about that. Yeah, so that constraint is real. It's not being faked, but actually it's not truthful. But what does that mean? Well, to me, it means being honest about how you feel. Mm -hmm. That's being truthful. And as you rightly say, Brian, we don't often exercise that as much as we want or half as much as we want in life because, you know. Well, we're punished for well, it. Well, we're punished for it, yeah. We'd lose mates, we'd lose uh, relatives, and we'd lose a job, and we'd probably be locked up. So yeah. <laughs> we aren't so there's truthful. a good reason why we aren't. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I say to students as well. I, say, I go, look, the protections we have against being truthful in our real lives are there for a reason, and they're not bad. But as actors, we want to have the choice to let go of those protections and to step into something that is more truthful than we're allowed to be in everyday life. It's okay to restrain yourself in performance for character purposes, but it's not good to be repressed as an artist or an actor in particular, because repression stops truth. It's okay to constrain that truth or restrain it because then what you're doing is you're revealing something. You're revealing something about that character and it's a choice that you're making. Yes, yes. Right. It's not just a reflex from your everyday life. Right. It's not just a habitual constraint that you know nothing about that has been stamped on you from an early age yeah. for whatever reason, either family, peers, schooling, and then society at large. And that's why, you know, all the work you talk about and the early Meisner stuff is fantastic for getting you to be more honest, to be unrepressed and therefore more expressive. I think audiences measure real life behavior with truth and there needs to be a logical cause and effect to an interaction that makes us believe it. If, let's say, two people on the street or actors, if they're connected and responding in a logical cause and effect way, 
i.e. they're being inspired to react because of what's being done to them, because they're connected and listening, then that often comes across as truthful because we recognize it as real life behavior and no one is imposing something from the head or outside of it, which is very applicable to acting. You know, it's got to be connected. That's another thing where we believe what actors are doing as truthful is when they're connected to what they're doing with the other person. And it's not sort of in isolation and it's not random, which is often, as you said, Brian, a thing coming from an idea. Actors often fall into the trap of inverted commas acting on stage and acting in that context refers to behaving on stage in a performed manner mm -hmm. right one that immediately tells us that the actor is not connected with what's going on in reality yeah. meaning the other people and the situation and that the actor is performing rather than doing and quite often then the actor moves and speaks in a way that we would never confuse with real life behavior mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't matter what's going through your mind at the time action that focuses the truth of the actor and that's what drives the truth because in order to act truthfully you need to know what's moving you to action what's driving you yeah. and i think an actor's sense of commitment to this the commitment to one's doing can influence how truthful a role seems strasberg used to say do the task with the energy the task demands again logical cause and effect connectedness you know, do the task with the energy the task demands. If you're not adding, then it will be believable because, you know, this sense of commitment can influence one's truth. If you don't believe you're acting and if you're not committed to your action and your doing, then neither will the audience. You mentioned Strasbourg and I'd like to just dip into that for a minute because, you know, there's sort of a very famous division that happened in the U.S. acting community after the study of Stanislavski's work in Russia and how Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner then, you know, investigated it and the work that was done in the group theater. And with respect for Mr. Strasberg's work and his contributions, I do think that the work around this idea of effective memory as an instrument for trying to bring truthful emotion to a moment. I really appreciate that Stella Adler and Meisner went off in another direction because there's something to me inherently so untruthful about how he was trying to get the actors to do this. So the idea was you're in a scene and your sister in the scene is revealing a great, great betrayal, and it means the end of your marriage and possibly a break from your own family. Like there's a very strong circumstance going on. And what you are asked to do as an actor performing that scene is to come up with some memory of your own that might bring you to an emotional ballpark that would be appropriate for the scene. And in the middle of the scene, you're toggling back and forth between you're trying to train the mind to be listening to your acting partner and yet summoning up the memory of this other experience that you had in your life in order to bring that emotion to the forefront. And while the intention maybe was to find truthful emotional life, I think that what Stella Adler and Meisner discovered was that act of splitting the mind was exactly where it became untruthful. If you're going to be fully present to the situation, the circumstances of the scene, and you're really listening and you're using your humanity to be responsive and you're using the study and the work that you've done to understand what it means to you and to develop your point of view about the scene, then you should hopefully be freely available to have a full emotional and authentic response 
in the moment to your partner. Yeah, I think it kind of loops back into and reconnects with that episode where any internal activity that pulls you out of what's actually happening right here, right now is by that very nature, the fact that it's pulling you out of the moment is going to make you untruthful. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the results of certain exercises and mechanisms can still engender truth in and of itself. But how it's applicable to one's truthful acting is, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's been proved too many times that it's not necessarily the best way to achieve truth, if at all. I'm with you on that. Yes. To clarify again, this idea about where actors tend to think that they need to emulate how they would handle something in real life in order to be truthful. What we're saying is you need to understand the real point of view that you have about something. The behavioral response may be another matter, that the character, the type of person you're portraying may be somebody who has a point of view you're standing in line and you're having a somebody accosts you and your true point of view about the person may be that you're absolutely disgusted by them. They smell the high heavens. You're afraid they're going to touch you. There may be something really visceral happening. And yet what that character, the kind of person that character is, what the character chooses to do is to retain composure and to step back a little bit. And to try to find an elegant way to get out of it. But it doesn't mean that your job isn't to figure out what that first primal intuitive response is to something in the moment, Mm -hmm. right? That's where the truth is. But why, Andrea? Say why it's important to do that. Well, because what we're trying to get at is something that looks like real life. I mean, we're looking at something that's human. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's, you know, superheroes or a mother and a son locked in a box, you know, whether it's room or Avengers, we're looking for something that we recognize because artistic expression, whether it's acting or music or dance, whatever it is, in some way, they all should be illuminating something about the nature of our existence that we recognize and that makes us think about it a different way. So whether it's our relationship to nature or to God or how we pray or praise or how we feel things, it's up to the artist's to be bringing this forth in a way that has authenticity. Otherwise, we don't recognize it. So even if it's of the imagination, there has to be something that resonates for us to be moved by it. So if we as actors are not in touch with that piece that is genuine and that is authentic and that has true life and movement in it, I mean, that's the beauty of comedy, isn't it, right? That we recognize our own silliness and our own audacity and outrageousness in comics And what makes us laugh is the truth in it. Yeah. And it's the same for our actors. The whole is not going to work unless we have that glimpse into the sublime and the base, but attached to our sense of humanity and the ideas of the human existence on earth. We have to touch that. And we're only going to get close to it, in my opinion, if we are focused on finding that core human truth of it. And then we can go move outside of it and say, okay, how does this person express the truth? That's character building. But you always have to know what the real perspective is underneath. The character building happens on a foundation of that particular actor's truthful opinions and responses to what's happening. 
Yes. And to answer my own question about why it's important to have the truthful response, even if that response is going to get behaviorally shut down, is that if it's just the shutting down, you won't be able to see anything beyond the shutting down. And that's not really enough in a dramatic setting. That what we want to see is the pull of the response and then it's shutting down. Because even if it happens a millisecond after you have the response, the audience will catch it and see, oh, there's something going on and that person is repressing it or shutting it down. And so I think that's why that's so important to have that initial truthful response, even if the way that that response is behaviorally expressed or the doing or the action of that truth isn't how you as an actor living out your ordinary everyday life would express that truth. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not revealing anything about the human being, which is the character. Right. And the ultimate aim of all acting is to illuminate something about the human condition by revealing something about the character. Yeah. And revelation can only take place where there is this crack, as you call it, for expression to struggle with being yeah. expressed or not. Mm-hmm. So in the work that I'm doing with students, which is very much based in Meisner technique, what happens when a student hits on their personal subjective truth about what is happening within that interaction, be it a scene or a repetition exercise or whatever it is, whatever's happening, it's a magical moment. You cannot have that subjective personal truth if you're not committing to it. Mm -hmm. You cannot half-ass it and have that level of truth that I think is required to do really great work and really magical work. Mm -hmm. So that goes right hand in hand with what Gary was saying about committing to the actions that you're doing, committing to the behaviors that you have within reason, right? You know, you can't commit more than you have, right? Because then that's pretending or that's being presentational, showing something that you don't have. But committing as fully as you can to what you have and what you really feel, that's the key that unlocks that truth. I mean, if you look at it from the psychology of communication, the actor is the sender and the audience is the receiver. And to ring true, it needs to touch on the reality of the receiver. It needs to ring true to the audience so they recognize it. However it's couched, whether it is a Marvel thing or whether it is Star Trek, anything that is created by a human, even an alien, will have some bearing of humanity in it because that's all we know and that's where it will come from. So the sense of truthfulness is a sense of ringing true to the audience. And I think that's what Andre was getting at earlier You know, we all look for getting the actor to be more expressively truthful. But, you know, as George Clooney said, actors like to cry, but real people try not to. Mm -hmm. You need the emotional truth of wanting to cry. You can't fake that because that won't ring true. But you don't have to express it in its fullness Mm -hmm. in order to portray a truthful character because human beings do try and hold it together. But the actor, in a lot of what is being talked about in their early stages of training, particularly, have to know what it's like and have to be able to explode, be totally vulnerable and be a mess and a sea of tears so that as a choice for character purposes to illuminate someone's perhaps repression, Mm -hmm. they are able to keep the lid on Mm -hmm. in order to portray 
a truthfully repressed person. Because what would be untruthful of a, of a repressed person is being too emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about in training being openly truthful and honest and authentic to the hilt. Mm-hmm. But then you got to use that diligently in order to reflect back what we know to be real life human behavior. Yeah. But that's going to be a choice based on what's required for whatever story you're telling. Yeah. Not what you would do as a person living in the world as the actor. Yeah. Not you, the actor, as George Clooney says, actors love to cry, but real people try not to. And I found that is often the case where that transition from all of that open work to then portrayal work. And it's like, I can't fault your openness and your beauty of emotion but it ain't required here, <laughs> or at least not to that extent, you know, and that requires a more sophisticated craftspersonship. But let's look at artistic truth, because we're already kind of going there. Another element of truth in acting has to also take account of the world you're in, the world of the film or the play. Yes. Which also has to take into account and include the style. And we've done recently a a podcast on style and how that affects one's preparation and acting. And together, these criteria, the world of the play or film and the style, create certain parameters from which to behave believably or truthfully within. What's believable in a farce isn't necessarily believable in an edgy, realistic drama. For instance, the Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson, for all intents and purposes, That's a farce, right? Mm -hmm. If we're talking about style, it's a fantastical tale set in a hotel that is populated by larger than life characters, eccentrics, a lot of them. And that is a world that's been created that if you approach it with an energy that is necessary for a Safdie Brothers gritty realistic film like Good Time, it ain't going to work and it ain't going to feel truthful. You talk about gritty realism And the neorealists of Italy, they were emphasizing and holding a mirror up to society and portraying real world struggles in the aftermath of World War II. And they they did so with great effect. But that's something maybe more like photographic reality. We understand that there's poor people who are struggling after war and that's portrayed realistically in detail. Mm. But then you look at something like the Grand Budapest Hotel or Marvel comics, these are different worlds which create their own sense of truth. And that's often missed because that can actually dumb down. You can either go too far if you're off the Richter scale or not enough, depending if you misjudge it. You probably won't get the role because they'll be getting people who don't misjudge it. But that's a real thing to take into account. If you miss it at the audition, you're not going to get the job. So you have to do your best to take it into account during the audition. And then be able to deliver it in performance when some people can maybe just about knock it together for the audition and then they haven't got the chops Mm -hmm. to go further and do a a Grand Budapest because they've been used to doing a a Safdie Brothers, you know. Gary, it goes back to what you talked about when you were talking about your clients who were coming to you asking for help on their self-tapes. Right. You know, where the truth of just saying it for their self-tape wasn't enough of a truth to 
feel like they were getting a response on their auditions. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you go back to the beginnings of all American acting technique, as we know it, back to the group theatre, Harold Clerman coined the phrase lies like truth. And this is where artistic truth comes in. It's different from real truth, everyday truth, because folks are looking for another type of truth when they look at works of art. Well, it's looking for that essential piece. Maybe it's not the literal representation of our lives, but it's a piece of work that can hone in on the essential underlying truth of something. I mean, it can be if it's a docu-style type drama. You know, I mean, art is a lie that makes us realize the truth, right? Which is what you were referring to earlier. It it distorts it in order to get at it in a strange way, which then in acting requires us to be in a certain way that we perhaps don't think are truthful or we don't operate that way in an everyday way. But the world of hobbits or the world of Klingons maybe requires something other than, as you say, a photorealist truth of life. You can just refer to sort of the visual artists and look at painters. There's still a truth there, but it doesn't resemble what I'm looking at in life when I look out my window. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet is not realistic, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It gets to the right at the core of an all-consuming love. It's violent, it's ecstatic, it's overpowering, and it supersedes all other values, loyalties and emotions. It's like a force. Yes. And it's telling us something about love and a certain type of love that we may or may not experience in life, but it's certainly a truth. But it might not be real to most people. Not these days, anyway. Well. Well, some people, I guess. Well, Zoom love. Zoom love is very real. <laughs> <laughs> Well, who can top Romeo and Juliet? It's always so great to get into these questions with you, and it gets me always more excited for the pieces of art that I've not yet uncovered, and then to be reminded of how much beautiful, beautiful artistry is available to us. And of course, we've seen in the pandemic, you know, how sustaining art has been. I think for many people, it's been soul-saving to have movies and films and music and instruments and paintbrushes. So it's really always fun to dig into what it's all about and why we're so committed to it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about any recommendations we might have. Every week we talk about something that we've uh, experienced, seen, tried, that we loved and that we want to share. Any any recommendations from you two this week? Well, listen, I've just really gotten into the Great British Bake Off. I think I talked about it last time. I'm still <laughs> into it. But I just started uh, Shit's Creek. Ah, mm. fantastic. Just at the beginning. So I have a lot to look forward to. Everybody talks about it, that it's really great. And I've enjoyed the first few episodes that I've watched so far. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the later seasons when I think they really get into the swing of it. So that's what I'm going to be consuming over the next week or so. Fantastic. Gary, what about you? Well, it's really interesting that Brian says that because I'm going around for the second time on Schitt's Creek. Oh, and I'm literally yeah. on, on episode four of the first season. We'll watch it together, Gary. We'll call each other yeah. and, well, and yeah, live tweet it or something. Let's try and sync the episodes. Yeah. and then. Uh, <laughs> I think you can do that now on Netflix. <laughs> you probably can, actually. But yeah, oh, you're in for a treat. And they're 20 minutes, so they're very digestible. And, you know, I often have them on when I'm eating or something because it's like, you know, they're just easy to consume. But they're yeah. they're such so brilliant so yeah enjoy enjoy that i'm looking forward the to lines it, yeah. um well i'm gonna go a bit different i'm gonna uh, get into uh, a painter actually because i'm often you know films and plays and there's a reason because this week i've been asked to do a, an interview about miss julie that i directed a while back 
And so I had to dig out some notes and begin to sort of get my head back into that. And so I started to dig at that. And then I realized that a big inspiration for my production of Strindberg's Miss Julie was the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch, who was an expressionist painter. And he's, he's best known for his work, The Scream, which is, you know, infamous, famous, which is not my favorite of his at all. But it's one of his most iconic. So people will know him from that. But if you look at his other stuff, I mean, there is a real strong presence of mental anguish that is kind of carries through in a lot of, if not all of his work. And it's quite strong and dark. And there's some troubled feelings that are in these paintings. And when you look at it, though, there's such depth and he's not realist in the way that we were talking about earlier, photorealist. It's more sort of expressionistic, and it just captures a real certain truth, if we're talking about truth, of a real sort of anguished personality. And that's what I was using as my source and moods for, for Miss Julie. So, yeah. And I just rediscovered that. So I recommend having a look at Edvard Munch's paintings, get beyond the scream, and look at some of his other ones. The reason I looked at it for Miss Julie was there's a lot of male-female scenes where there's just two characters in there and there's the dynamic there, which is he's looking at the real sort of problems that the male-female energy and psyche can create if it's not healthy. So, yeah, not a comedy like Schitt's Creek, but um, have a look at some Edvard Munch. Cool. Andrea, what about you? Well, I finished a book that I had been listening to and I, I came across a podcast and I really liked the ideas of the woman who was being interviewed. So now I'm listening to her book. It's called Boundary Boss, <laughs> <laughs> The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. It's by Terry Cole. She's a psychotherapist. And what's interesting about it from an acting standpoint is this idea that we've sort of been looking at today with uncovering what your true desires and preferences and needs are and how to create healthy boundaries so that you can stand up for those. And the importance, not of sort of blasting everybody with your truthful point of view about things and going off and destroying relationships, but getting to a place of having respect for the things that you need and finding healthy ways to interact about that. So it's about character. It's about looking at past patterns. So there's a lot of sort of research in finding out what maybe your map is and then coming up with some new ideas about how to move forward in a way. But the idea of truthfulness keeps poking through as I'm listening to it. And so I wanted to share that this is something that may be of value to some people out there. It's written with women in mind, but as she says, we are not the only ones who understand unhealthy boundaries. And mm. then I've taken a look again at Ozark. Another one of Gary's favorites. Yes, well remembered. Another one of Gary's favorites with Jason Bateman and Laura Linney and Julia Garner. And She's a favorite of mine. Yeah, it's a really great performance. But it's really enjoyable to watch. The tone is interesting. The storyline, of course, interesting. This idea of fish out of water. I like the way that the location is another character, as one would say, in this piece and how it sets a certain sense of danger and exposure. Mm -hmm. So I'm enjoying it again very much. Cool. That's my recommendation for the week. Awesome. Great recommendations. 
Yeah. Well, I think I'll close it out by asking our listeners to let us know what their experience with the truth is, especially as actors and in their artistry. So you can get in touch with us and let us know at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can also join our discussions on Facebook. And we'd love to hear from you, as always. If you'd like to get in touch with us as individuals, if you'd like some coaching from Gary or from Andrea, you can do that too. Uh, so, uh, Andrea, how can people get in touch with you? I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene, and I am on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And Gary, what about you? So yeah, you can get in touch with me as always on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Gary Condes or visit my website, have a little look, drop me an email and connect with me that way. GaryCondes.com is my website address. Awesome. And if you do want to get in touch with me, I'm at Brian Casp on Instagram and Twitter and on my Facebook page. So yeah, get in touch. And uh, for all of you out there in Vagabond Actors Land, we hope that you stay safe and that you stay creative. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Take care, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.